Our Father, the Scriptures tell us that those who know thy name will put their trust in thee. That's us. We know the name of Jesus. We know what he has done on that cross 2,000 years ago for us, that he came and took our sins upon him. He who was God laid aside his privileges and came to the earth as a man and was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life and took our sins, which we could never pay for, but he took them upon himself and he paid for them in full. And the scriptures tell us that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. We thank you for new life. We thank you for eternal life. We thank you that through your mercy and kindness that we have been born again to a living hope and that our future is secure in Christ and eternity is sure. And we thank you that as we walk this earth in the remaining years that we have left, that you sustain us and you guide us and you give us wisdom. That is a huge benefit. We're just not here by ourselves to figure this thing out. But you said in Psalm 32, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. You offer us wisdom. You offer us counsel and guidance that is superior to anything we can get anywhere else. What, 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 a, what a valuable benefit to have the mind of Christ available to us in your book. That's why we're here tonight. We're not interested in the opinions of men. Um, that's on television, it's on radio, it's in the media, it's uh, online, it's on our phones, it's everywhere. We need to hear from you. Every man is uh, faced with challenges. Every man has burdens and weights and concerns and pressures and deadlines and obligations, and at times we wonder how we will meet those. Well, we call upon you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So tonight, we ask for wisdom. We thank you that as we delve into the scriptures, we will find hope, we will find encouragement. We will find a sure word, and we need it tonight. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are completing tonight not only a semester, but we're completing what we began last week. Last week, we took on the subject of the wilderness. Because as you walk with the Lord, 
more than once you're going to find yourself in a wilderness and you're going to discover that actually God is the one who leads you into the wilderness. Every man in the Bible where we have enough information to find out about their lives, you will see that that man who was chosen by the Lord and that man who was given a task of leadership at some point would be led into the wilderness. Same for us. And it's just not a one-time event, as we saw last week. There are, on the path of life, as we walk with the Lord, He'll take us into a wilderness. Every wilderness has a beginning, it has a middle, and an end, and the timing is known only to the Lord. But He will bring you out. He'll equip you. He'll teach you lessons in that wilderness and get you ready for the next chapter of life, the next episode of life. There'll be a season of refreshment, of rest, but there'll be another wilderness. It's just the Christian life. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. John Newton wrote in the hymn, Amazing Grace. You look back and you see some wildernesses but you see the goodness of God and you see incredibly valuable lessons. Some of you guys uh, went to boot camp. You're in the Army now. You're in the Marines now. You're in the Navy now. And while you were there, you were just so thankful God had put you in there. <laughs> the comfort, the encouragement, um, the golf course, the jacuzzi, no, that's not how it works. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it taught valuable lessons that have been with you for the rest of your life. That's the Christian life. So tonight, we're going to finish up our study about the wilderness. It revolves around Paul in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is the most autobiographical of all his epistles. We get glimpses into Paul's life, and we get glimpses into his time in the wilderness. He refers to the, to the hard times, to the wilderness experiences throughout 2 Corinthians. We're, we're not going to be able to handle all those or even look at them all tonight, but we'll, we'll touch on them. And we will benefit from them, and we will learn some lessons. I don't know if you've ever heard of the book by John Fox called Fox's Book of Martyrs. It was first published in 1573. John Fox gave a history of those who had given their lives for Christ in martyrdom. We, we know Stephen was the first martyr in the book of Acts, but John Fox went back and researched and listed by name and by event and situation those who had given their life for Christ. But he was living in a time where Christianity, biblical Christianity, was under attack, so he had to continue to bring out revised editions. He had to update the statistics. There's a devotional that C.H. Spurgeon put together that is of great value. 
Some of you read it. Um, my brother-in-law reads it every day. It's called morning and evening. It's got meat to it. It's not some foo-foo uh, It's got meat to it. There's a lot of foo-foo devotionals out there. Uh, But this has got meat and potatoes. It's short. It's brief. It's got scripture. It's to the point. Spurgeon included this story from Fox's Book of Martyrs. He says this, At Stratford-on-Bow, a place in England, in the days of Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, of the Christians she killed, there was once a stake erected for the burning of two martyrs, Hugh Laverock and John a priest. The full account is given in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Laverock, a 60-year-old crippled painter, and a priest, a blind man, were scheduled to be burned at the stake together. Just when the fire was lit, Lavrock, the lame man, hurled away his crutch and turning around said to the blind man, Courage, brother, this fire will cure us both. That's called perspective. Spurgeon writes, so can the righteous say of the grave, courage, the grave will cure us all. We shall leave our infirmities behind us. What patience this should give us to endure all of our trials, for they are not of long duration. As the fire would cure the crippled and the blind martyr, so the wilderness matures God's men. We looked last week at the comments of Bill Lawrence in his excellent little booklet, Wilderness Wanderings, and I want to go back to a section from Bill Lawrence because it's so good. He writes these words. Remember now, the wilderness are those times of barrenness, the times that we go into the desert, the times where, um, where life is hard. The Lord gives, Job said, and the Lord takes away. Job was in a wilderness. Daniel was in a wilderness. Joseph was in a wilderness. Abraham was in a wilderness. As soon as Abraham leaves his home, follows the call of God, he went out not knowing where he was going, The first thing that happens when he gets to where God called him, he encounters a famine. It's called the wilderness. God took his people through a wilderness. But the wilderness is an incredibly valuable place. God always brings good out of a wilderness. Bill Lawrence writes, at times... We leaders, when we're in the wilderness, feel forgotten by God as if he had lost our phone number, discarded our email address, and forgot to put us in the game. But he hasn't forgotten us. In the distance and silence of the grace wilderness, 
God is preparing us by radically changing what matters most to us. Now stop and think about that for a minute. Think about, uh, as a young man, in your 20s, what you wanted to achieve and what you wanted to accomplish and what your goals were. As we get older, as we walk with the Lord, what matters most begins to change. The things we valued at one time, we don't value as much anymore. Why? Because God's doing a work in our hearts. In the distance and silence of the grace wilderness, God is preparing us by radically changing what matters most to us. We no longer seek approval through our accomplishments, associations, or any other human measurement. We draw our identity closely, exclusively from Christ and focus solely on advancing His cause by pursuing His purpose for us. Not our purpose, His purpose. That's the key to life, is finding out what His purpose is. You will make known to me the path of life, Psalm 16 says. And it's going to look different (laughs) than when we were young. We anticipate this, we anticipate that, we expect this, we expect that, we expect... And it's different, but it's better. Uh, The question we now face is simply, Bill Lawrence says, have we been to the grace wilderness? This may be the most painful wilderness we ever enter because grace forces us to look into ourselves, to see ourselves as we never wanted to, to stare fully into the mirror of pride and competition, of personal ambition and self-advancement. Was it 30 years ago, 35 years ago, there was a best-selling book, Looking Out for Number One. I remember I just, um, I was just graduating from seminary. I had a friend working at a church in California, wound up spending a day with him and this church that he was in was a, a fast-growing uh, church. A lot of action, Bible church, but I mean, people were just flocking. And a lot of, I mean, it was happening. It was the place to be. It was exciting. It was um, pretty cool deal. And they taught the Bible. We spent a couple hours together, and then the guy who was the, the lead guy, the head guy, uh, he came in, and uh, we hung out for a couple hours, went to lunch, and it, it, he kept talking about this book he'd been reading, and how significant this book was, how, what, what an impact it had made upon him how it uh, had really challenged his thinking and expanded his thinking, and uh, talked about this author I'd never heard of. I said, I didn't catch the title of this book. What's the title of the book? He said, it's called Looking Out for Number One. I said, really? He said, it's excellent. You ought to get a copy. 
I did. I read it the next day. I told Mary, now I'm no prophet, I'm not the son of a prophet, but I read the book. I told Mary, I said, that guy's going down. If he's that excited about this book, which is all about selfish ambition, furthering your own agenda, basically doing whatever you need to do to get ahead, it's absolutely contrary to Scripture. And this guy not only graduated from an evangelical seminary, but would teach and speak at different seminaries around the country. It was astonishing. And sadly, he went down because he was listening to the wrong wisdom. That was All that was doing was feeding his sense of self, his sense of entitlement, his sense of, um, what, just looking out for number one. You know, it's hard to have a good marriage when you're looking out for number one, especially if your wife reads the same book. That's going to get interesting. And then when they come out with the kids' version and you get copies for each of your kids. So everybody in the family is looking out for number one. That's not much of a family. That's, that's, uh, that's guerrilla warfare. Jesus said, if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you must become the, the servant of all. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He sacrificed. He got killed for the church. Have this same mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus, even though he existed as God, Philippians 2. He did not regard equality with God or the privileges a thing to be held on to. So, so he laid aside his privileges. Jesus was always God. He became the God-man. But what he had in glory, he set aside and came to earth. Have this same mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus, although he existed as God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, he became a man, a God-man. He gave himself. He sacrificed himself. He humbled himself. That's not looking out for number one. What Jesus did is that he came down and looked out for us. He gave himself for us. Have this mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus. This is why we go into the wilderness. And looking back, very uh, gifted pastor who loved that book wound up going into a very, very prolonged wilderness. As we all do. And the last I heard, he had learned from the wilderness. Good for him. The name of the game is to be teachable when you get in the wilderness because we're all going and we're all full of pride.
I'm going to read that section again. This may be the most painful wilderness we ever enter because grace forces us to look into ourselves, to see ourselves as we never wanted to, to stare fully into the mirror of pride and competition, of personal ambition and self-advancement, to take off the blindfold, the blindfold of denial and see our sin as the holy God sees it. Sometimes in the grace wilderness, we will wonder where God is if He's done with us and hasn't yet told us because He's leaving it up to us to figure it out that He's done. Uh, I, Bill Lawrence says, I have been there and thought God was done with me, that he had fired me. Indeed, I would have fired myself for failing as miserably as I had. What I have discovered has stunned me. While the grace wilderness feels like the end of our opportunity to serve God, it actually is the beginning. He may implode all that we have done, but he plans to replace our self-produced effort with a greater edifice built by his grace. No wilderness is as difficult or as fruitful as the grace wilderness. If you don't believe me, look at Saul, who became Paul. His change of name meant a change of identity, and that is what we are driven to obtain. Virtually all leaders are seeking an identity transplant, striving to become someone through our success. By grace, we gain the identity that Christ has for us, and we become the leader's he created us to be. If you are struggling with who you are, if you can't find God or figure out what he's doing, if your fruit has dried up and you wonder if God has turned his back on you, you may be in the grace wilderness. Take a chance that you are and tell God you give up. Remember the old hymn, I surrender all? I surrender all? All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. There you go. Take a chance that you are in the grace wilderness and tell God you give up. It's no longer you, it's only him. No longer self-confidence, only grace confidence. If there's rubble to be cleared away, let God clear it away. Then begin anew to bear the fruit that comes out of the grace wilderness. Let God's grace... Water your life. There's wisdom there. The wilderness is a tough place, but it is so valuable. The fact of the matter is, the Lord in His mercy and grace at certain times will put us in the wilderness and make us weak so that we will learn to trust in Him and in His power. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I said last week that throughout 2 Corinthians, you find uh, Paul referring to the wildernesses that he went through. In 2 Corinthians 12, we also find Paul's epitaph in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10, we read this at the end of 10, for when I am weak, 
then I am strong. Men hate to be weak. We don't want to be weak in our health. We don't want to be weak in our um, reputations. We don't want to be weak in our leadership. We don't want to be weak in our finances. We, we just we don't want to be weak. We want to be strong. What God does, as you look throughout the Scripture, is that God takes strong men, and through circumstances, He makes them weak so that they will turn to Him and call upon Him for His help. Psalm fifty fifteen, call on me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you, and you will honor me. He will sovereignly oversee our lives and steer us into the wilderness. And sometimes we get there by our own stubbornness and our own stupidity. Other times it's the result of what someone has done to us. But we're in a wilderness and we're in trouble. And we're out of options. I got to back up in 2 Corinthians 12 to get context and read verses 7 through 10. Now, In verses 1 through 6, I'm going to summarize this. In verses 1 through 6, Paul was caught up into heaven, was taken to heaven. He said that he saw things which a man is not permitted to speak. On Christian television, and you go in Christian bookstores, there'll be books by people who say they, they went to heaven. Um, or you'll see some guy on Christian television, semi-Christian television, giving a testimony, oh, yes, I was, you know, went to heaven, talked to Jesus. Um, he told me this. I saw this. I, you know, da, 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 da. I don't believe him. And I'm going to tell you why. I know Paul went to heaven. And Paul says in 12.4, I was caught up in a parable paradise, and I heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Paul couldn't talk about it. So why can they talk about it? I don't think it's legit. That's my opinion, biblically. Huh. Now, verse 5, on behalf of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I will refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Now he keeps going. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, if the Lord took you up to heaven and you came back, how would you feel about yourself? You would blow it up like a toad with pride. And so would I. Why? None of your friends have been to heaven. Your pastor hasn't been to heaven. Uh, nobody's been to heaven. But you were taken to heaven. You must be something really special. It's just human nature. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. 
that would be pride. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, watch this, for power is perfected in weakness. You won't find this verse on too many refrigerators. You won't see too many bumper stickers with this verse on it. Because do you want to be weak? No. Do I want to be weak? No, not really. But you see, his power is perfected in weakness, so therefore he will allow me to become the very thing I don't want to become, which is weak. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content uh, with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, ah, then I am strong. This is so counterintuitive. This is so anti-American. It's so anti-being a self-made man. God, there's no doubt God has given us gifts. God has given us skills. God has given us aptitudes. He's given you, uh, he's given you everything. And oftentimes when we have a measure of success or when we have an accomplishment, or what happens is we get puffed up. And we start getting proud. And we start thinking it's about us and we start thinking it's about our agenda and you know how it works. You've seen it in others and you see it in yourself as I do. First Corinthians 4, 7 and what do you have that you did not receive? See, that's humility. Whatever you have, it's a gift from God. J.I. Packer is in his 90s now. Great, great theologian. He is, uh, he's blind now. His latest book which, as you read the foreword and his, his comments and thanking the editors and such, he pretty much had to dictate because he's blind. The book is called Weakness is the Way. It's based on 2 Corinthians. He looks back over his life and recounts his time in the wilderness from even before he knew the Lord. As a young boy, um, someone was chasing him, a bully was chasing him, and he ran out into the street trying to get away, and he got hit by a vehicle. And for the next 10 years, walked around with a, a plate in his head to cover a hole, the first time I ever saw him, the plate's no longer there, but there is this obvious large indentation in his forehead. He's carried it with him his whole life. Because of that, he couldn't play sports. Because of that, he really didn't go outside much. Because of that, instead of getting the bicycle he wanted on his 10th birthday, his dad couldn't give him a bicycle. Because if he had a fallen and hit his head, it would have killed him. His dad gave him a old typewriter. 
which was really interesting because he would spend the rest of his life researching and writing the Scriptures. Uh, God made him weak early. This little book is based on 2 Corinthians. Weakness is the way. J.I. Packer asked this question. For what is weakness? The idea from first to last is of inadequacy. We talk about physical weakness, meaning that there is a lack of vigor and energy and perhaps bodily health so that one cannot manhandle furniture or tackle heavy yard jobs. We talk about intellectual weakness, meaning inability for some form of brain work. Uh, for instance, C.S. Lewis had an almost total inability to do mathematics. And I have the same missingness in the same area, Packer says. We talk about personal weakness, indicating thereby that a person lacks resolution, firmness of character, dignity, and the capacity to command. We talk about a weak position, when a person lacks resources and cannot move situations forward or influence events as they desire. We talk about relational weakness, when persons who should be leading and guiding fail to do so. Weak parents, weak pastors, so on. Every day finds us affirming the inadequacy of others at point after point. A Peanuts cartoon from way back has Lucy asking a glum-looking Charlie Brown what he is worrying about. Say, says Charlie, I feel so inferior. Oh, Lucy says, you shouldn't worry about that. Lots of people have that feeling. What, that they're inferior? No, Lucy replies, that you're inferior. What a sweetheart, huh? Packer goes on and says this, often linked with the sense of weakness, sometimes as a cause, sometimes as an effect, is the feeling of failure. This is huge among men. The feeling of failure. The memory of having fallen short in the past can hang like a black cloud over one's present purposes and in effect program one to fail again. Christian faith, prompting solid hope and promising present help should dispel all such fears and expectations, but, but does not always do so. And the encouragement that one should give to another who needs it is frequently in short supply. Now, we talked about this last week. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Once again, this all has to do with the wilderness. Why do we go in the wilderness? What's the purpose? 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And he goes down for the next verses talking about the comfort that we receive from God. And as we saw last week, the comfort that Paul mentions here in his day really mean to be comforted meant to be strengthened, to be fortified. Uh, the mercy that we receive God when we're in difficulty and when we're in trouble, he comes in, he's merciful, he delivers us, he strengthens us, he fortifies us. And what 1 Corinthians 
I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 1 is saying is that the comfort we receive, the strength we receive, a scripture we receive that strengthens us when we're afflicted, later we can pass that on to someone else who is in trouble, and what that can do is that it can comfort, it can strengthen, it can encourage them. Admiral Ed Allen was a captain of one of the 12 United States Navy aircraft carriers. He made this statement one time about those who encourage. He said, the catapult is what makes the United States Navy work. It is virtually invisible, but it gets 60,000 pounds that is a fully loaded F-14 off the deck in about 200 feet. You are not the carrier. You are not the plane. You are not the pilot. You are the catapult that gets the plane airborne. When we give a word of encouragement, give a word of strength that we have received from God when we were in the wilderness to someone who now is in the wilderness, we're a catapult. We are catapulting them out of discouragement, out of despair, with the comfort from God, with the strength from God that was given to us. There's nothing more significant in the world than that. Interesting in 2 Corinthians 12 that Paul was given a thorn in the flesh to make him weak. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians 12. I, I love this stuff because, as I said last week, when you heal the wilderness, if you don't know the Scriptures, this stuff can be devastating. Because I thought God loved me. I thought God cared for me. I thought Jesus gave his life for me. So why has he allowed this to happen in my life? And why is this? Well, the more you know the Scriptures and the more you know the Lord and you see the way that God works, the more what happens, you can fit into a grid that will keep you from despair and discouragement and bitterness towards the Lord. When God wants to drill a man and skill a man, then watch his methods and watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him. And I can't remember the rest of it. You say, who wrote that poem? It's anonymous. But I will tell you this, whoever wrote that, and he gets better, that guy had been in the wilderness. <laughs> when God wants to drill a man and skill a man and use a man, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him. This is tough stuff, but it's for our good. 
He wants to conform me into the image of Christ. We're talking major change. Do you know how many psychiatrists it takes to change a light bulb? Just one, but the light bulb must want to change. You know how you get conformed to the image of Christ? You're in the wilderness, and you must want to change. You don't want to fight him. You want to surrender. You want to give up and say, not my will, but thine be done. Once again, 2 Corinthians 12. Because of these revelations given to him in heaven, in order to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Eight. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said for me, to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. I love what Jason Meyer has said about this. Paul was not a humble man, but he was a humbled man. He needed to be humbled because he was naturally proud, just like us. To be proud is, is C.S. Lewis, who had the classic definition of pride. In his little book, Mere Christianity, he has a chapter called The Greatest Sin. It's not adultery, it's not pornography, it's not this, it's not that, it's pride. It's the sin that caused Satan to fall. And he just goes through it in a way that nobody else can do it. And he just says, basically, you just want to be better than anybody else. You want your date to the prom to be just a little bit prettier than any of the other guys' date. You just want to be better. You just want to be first. You just want to be number one. He goes on and says, Even heavenly visions did not humble Paul. He was not humbled by them. He needed to be humbled because of them. That's very insightful. He says, pride can even take great visions and falsely translate them into a self-exalting mission uh, message of how great we are for receiving them. God's gracious answer to this problem was a painful thorn. Paul regarded it as a bad thing and asked three times that the Lord would remove it. But God said no because the bad thorn served a good purpose. Think about that statement for a second. God gave Paul chronic pain. Why? Paul needed chronic pain because his real problem was chronic pride. That's brilliant. And it applies to all of you guys. C.H. <laughs> Spurgeon, the great preacher in the 1800s, 
Some of you guys have heard this story. A lady walked up to him after a Sunday morning service, and she said, Mr. Spurgeon, I'll have you know that I have not sinned in 15 years. And he said, oh, my dear lady, you must be very proud. And she said, I am. It just went right over her head. She never got it. We've all got chronic pride. If Paul had chronic pride, I've got it. And if Paul, it was a good thing for Paul to have a thorn, it's a good thing for me to have a thorn. Everybody's thorn is different. But everybody's got something. For you, it might be your health. For some other guy, it might be career, finances. It, it can be, you know, a lot of things. It's the thing we wish that God would remove, and he doesn't. David said, it was good for me that I was afflicted. These are hard words to hear, but they're important. Last week, we looked at uh, three questions we inevitably have when we go into the wilderness. Tonight, I want to uh, have us examine three common fears that we have when we find ourselves in an intense wilderness. You know, there are different kinds of wildernesses. Some are brief, some are short, some are long, some are uh, much more intense, much more draining. When you just thumb through Second Corinthians, you see Paul's different wildernesses. Um, the problem in a wilderness is that it's very easy to lose courage and it's very easy to lose hope. He talks about this throughout 2 Corinthians. Um, chapter 4, verse 1, uh, chapter 3, verse 5, I'm sorry. He says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Now, there you go. That's where we want to be. We're not adequate for what God calls us to do. We're not adequate to be the fathers we need to be. We're not adequate to be the husbands. We're not adequate to be the leaders. We're not but his spirit, working with his word, can make us adequate, can bring about a change, can bring about a transformation. We can mature, we can grow. But it's slow going and it's tough. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. The fight is not to lose heart. Our theme verse has been Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart, for from it flows the springs of life. It's easy to lose heart when you're in a wilderness and you're not making the progress that you think you ought to be making and things are not getting easier, they're getting more and more intense. 
Verse 7. We have this treasure in earth and vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Watch this. Before I read this. Now, what does he say in 12? In 12, God says to him, God wouldn't take away the thorn. God says, my power is perfected in weakness. When we get weak, we get fearful because we don't have the strength to do what we normally can do. Okay, now watch what he says in verse 8. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Why? He's learning about the power of God, and he's learning about the ways of God. Mary and I were talking about uh, a lady that we know and we know her well, and we're watching her life right now. And uh, honestly, she's afflicted in every way. She's a wonderful Christian lady. She's a godly woman, and on every front of her life, she's getting absolutely hammered right now. And the Lord sees it, and he's with her. And she's somehow holding up. Why? Because of the power of God. We are afflicted in every way, ah, but not crushed. We are perplexed. When you're in the wilderness, God will perplex you. A lot of what's going on will make absolutely no sense. We're perplexed, ah, but we're not despairing. Why? Because of my God who is sovereign and who is at work and who governs my life. Now, see, if you know that, it'll give you some breathing room. It's still hard, and you can't figure it out, and you don't have any answers, but you know that he loves you and he's for you. Psalm 56, 9, this I know that, this I know that God is for me. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's the love of God. When you're getting the crud kicked out of you, he loves me. He's up to something. I can't see it. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't like it. But he's working Somehow, some way, I can't even imagine he's going to bring good. I can't. E- I don't even want to think about it. It's so impossible. You ever been there? Sure you. Oh, if not, you're going to get there. Just, just trying to encourage you. Just buckle up, and he'll get you through it. Oh, persecuted but not forsaken. So there is a pastor in Turkey who's being persecuted. Andrew Brunson. Every time I, and he's being referred to a lot now because we've got some people that are trying to take care of him and get him out. He's, he's, a, he's being used as a pawn. Every time I see his name, where he comes to my mind, I pray for him and I try to pray for his wife and kids. He's a godly man, he loves the Lord Jesus. He doesn't have any political agenda. He's in the wilderness. So is his family. 
persecuted, uh, but not forsaken, because Jesus said to Andrew Brunson, I will never leave you or forsake you, even in your, that little cell, which should handle two people, and there's eight or nine other crazies in there with you. Who knows the torment they're trying to bring on his life. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also be, may, may be manifested in our body. 5, 6, therefore being always of good courage and knowing that while we are home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. See, this is the wilderness. <laughs> You're not seeing a lot of good stuff happening. The Lord gives, the Lord's taken away. He's stripped you. He's, he's put, taken things away that other people have that you know, and they've got all this good stuff, but you don't have it. Why? Well, he's got you walking by faith and not by sight. Go back to 4.16. I'm just picking out sections. He says, therefore we do not lose heart, though our outer man is decaying. And a lot of us would say amen to that. I mean, we were at the park last Sunday evening with my kids and the grandkids, and we're out there, and we're just playing tag, and you know, you know. And I'm standing after playing tag and trying to catch these little kids. And I'm standing with my son and my son-in-law, and all of a sudden I just, I went like that. And my son, who's a paramedic, I said, I said, call 911. It was a joke. I said, you're here. He said, what's wrong, Dad? I said, it's my knee right here on this side. And I mean, I couldn't put my weight on it. And I had to go over and I had to sit down and all that. Next day I was fine. I've been fine all week. But I had made a cut trying to get my little four-year-old Caleb, sucker as quick as grease lightning. I'm trying to get that kid. It was like trying to get Barry Sanders in an open field. And I'm trying to get that kid, and I made a cut, and I never make a move like that, and it just got me here, and I was pretty much done for the day. And I go home, and I'm, I'm kind of like this. and I, You know, it's embarrassing. It's humiliating. A while back, I got on an escalator and pulled a hamstring. <laughs> it's a joke. But we get older and we break down, don't we? You young guys, wait for it. Enjoy what you got. Watch this. Therefore, we don't lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. Watch this. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Momentary light affliction. It's interesting he'd use that phrase. Look at 6.4. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. Go down to eight. By glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold, we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Uh, then go to uh, go to First uh, Corinthians eleven. Uh, he's having to defend his apostleship. A lot of people are attacking him. 
and he does something he doesn't normally do. He's having to defend his apostleship. Verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I am more so. In far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number. How many times have you been beaten up? Well, you got in a fight in high school and lost. You remember it. He'd been beaten so many times, he couldn't put a number on it. Now, stop and think about that. Oh, when he went, you think he had trouble sleeping at night? And there were no uh, prescription bottles on his nightstand. There were no painkillers. He probably had fractures that didn't heal right. He probably had internal bleeding. He probably had blood in his stool. Because you're beaten times, you, you can't even remember how many times. But it's momentary light affliction. That's a wilderness. And he's just getting warmed up. Beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews, 39 lashes. You know why they didn't give you 40? Because 40 would kill you, and he had it happen five times. He'd take, he would take his shirt off. His, his back would look like ground round. You think he could sleep on his back? No. Uh, five times I received from the Jews. Uh, I'm sorry, three times I was beaten with rods. See, that's different. That's a whole other deal. This is, this is unbelievable. Once I was stoned. This isn't Bob Dylan stoned. This is Stephen Book of Acts stoned. This is Fox's Book of Martyrs stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys, dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my country, dangers from the Gentile. You see? Uh, but he calls that momentary light affliction. What do you have? What's going on in your life right now that you're being treated for and you're getting medication for and the doctors are trying to help you? He had none of that. I'm not saying your stuff isn't hard. Some of you guys have unbelievably difficult situations physically. But you see, how can he say this momentary light affliction? It's all what you measure it against. We tend to measure what's going on just in this life. Paul measures it to the eternal weight of glory. It's the two martyrs getting ready to be burned. <laughs> We're about ready to be cured. That's perspective. But see, you read stuff like this, and it kind of makes you fearful. And, and every guy in this room is thinking, man, I hope I don't go anything like that. I don't want to go through anything near that. And you probably won't. But in the wilderness, there are fears that come up. Now, I mentioned them 10 minutes ago. I probably ought to delineate them. Let me give you the three fears. Number one, and by the way, remember, his power is made perfect in weakness, okay? When we get weak, we get fearful because we can't do what we normally do to fend for ourselves, to take care of ourselves, to provide for ourselves to, in a thousand different ways. Okay. Number one, in our weakness in the wilderness, 
We fear at times we are so far behind that we will never be able to catch up. We all kind of have a timeline of our lives, and at a certain point in life, whatever you, wherever you are right now in life, at, you had a perspective that at this age, you would be down the road of life this far and have achieved this much, and you're up here. But when God puts you in the wilderness, a lot of times the reality is you're not this far up here. You're back here, and you're down here. And in your head, you're thinking, I'll never be able to catch up. This could be financially. Oftentimes, this is what happens. We take a loss financially. Something happens. I'll never recover. There's no way. How am I going to? And it just, how long am I going to be in this wilderness? And we ask the Lord to help us, and we ask the Lord to deliver us, and really not much is happening. So in our weakness, that's our fear. His power can accelerate us to where we need to be. His power can accelerate us to where we need to be. This is how you have to look at these fears. So what's the weakness? I'm so far behind I can never catch up with whatever it is. All right? His power can accelerate you to where you need to be. Uh, think about Joseph in, uh, in Genesis. So Joseph is sold. He's a slave to Potiphar. He is promoted. God has favor upon him. He's running the whole show for Potiphar. Uh, it's an incredible story. And then Potiphar has a wife. We don't know her name. I like to call her Predator. She keeps saying to Joseph, hey, sleep with me, sleep with me. He won't do it. He won't do it. He won't do it. She gets hacked off. She tries to grab him one day. He runs out of his toga. She says, he tried to rape me. He tried to assault me. And Joseph gets put into prison. Is he put into prison for doing what's wrong? He's put into prison for doing what's right. He's in there. Does he want to be in there? No. What a setback. He'd been sold into slavery. Now this God gives him favor, and he's in Potiphar's house, and he's honoring God. He's following the Lord, and now there's a cross providence. Now he's in jail for doing what was right. Two guys are thrown in. The, oh, by the way, <clears throat> while he's in the jail, the Lord gives him favor, and before long, he's running the jail. He runs the whole thing like he ran the estate. Two guys get thrown in with him, the cupbearer and the baker. They both work for Pharaoh. They have dreams. They're all freaked out. Joseph says, what are the dreams? He interprets the dreams. He says to the cupbearer, you're going to live. You're going to be restored. He says to the baker, you're going to get the noose. And that's what happened. When the cupbearer is going back to work for Pharaoh, Joseph says to the guy, don't forget me. Don't forget me. You know what the guy did? He forgot him. And he forgot him for two years. You know why he forgot? God made him forget. Because Joseph was in the wilderness and there were still lessons to be learned. It says two more years. How will I ever recover from this? How will I ever catch up? How, well, so then one night, two years later, Pharaoh has a dream. You know why Pharaoh had a dream? God said, hey, you little wuss, dream this. Most powerful man on the face of the earth, dream this. Proverbs 21.1. Like channels of water in the hands, like channels of water. How's that go? 
like channels of water. Uh, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. So God says, dream this. And the guy dreams it. Seven fat cows, seven lean cows, seven full stalks, seven, seven withered stalks. And the guy just freaks out, gets all his guys together. He says, I had this dream. What, I mean, what's this thing? You know, uh, tell me. Nobody knows. And all of a sudden, this guy remembers. He said, hey, there's this Hebrew guy, and I had this dream. He said, get him up here. So they clean up Joseph. They run him to a car wash. They get him new clothes. You know, the thing. Anyway, he comes in, and Pharaoh says, hey, uh, you know, I understand you can, no, but there's a God who can. He tells him the dream, and Joseph said, all right, here's what you have. There's going to be seven good years of prosperity, and there's going to be seven years of famine. You better get somebody to manage this seven good years and take 20% and put it away to get through the seven years. And he says, you're the man. And in about 30 minutes, he went from the lowest place to the highest place and was equal with Pharaoh. That's called acceleration. Proverbs 75, not from the east, not from the west, not from the desert comes promotion. Promotion comes from God. In John 6, they've been with Jesus. They're in the boat. They're on the Sea of Galilee. Check this out. They're on the Sea of Galilee. John 6, is it 6? Yeah, 18. Um, they're rowing the boat. They're going across to Capernaum. It had already become dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred because of a strong wind. When they had rowed about three or four miles. And they, hey, think about this. They got a strong wind. They got waves. It's dark. It's at night. They're about three, four miles out. Suddenly they saw Jesus on the sea and drawing near to the boat. They were frightened. He said to me, it is I. Don't be afraid. These guys are exhausted. So they were willing to receive him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Instantaneously. They covered four miles. Because if you've ever been on that sea, if you're that far out, it's at least four miles to where you're going. Instantaneously, he accelerated them to where he wanted them to be. God can do that. That's either true or it isn't. So just keep being faithful where you are. Second fear. We fear we'll never find our way out of the wilderness. But his power has already planned your way out. Psalm 142, verse 3. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. When you don't have a clue, you're overwhelmed, you're exhausted, you're fatigued, you've lost your wisdom, you've lost your connections, you've lost your network, you've lost it all. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. He's known your path since before he created you. 
We don't know it. He knows it. That's a comfort. That's a strength. Well, how's that, how's that going to work? You don't know. You couldn't guess it in a million years what he's going to do. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. Watch his methods. Watch his ways. He's astonishing. If you had a million years, you couldn't figure out what he's going to do. So don't try to figure it out. Just rest. Just keep doing the next right thing. Be faithful. And, and my times are in your hand. Psalm 31, 14. 138, 8 of Psalms. The Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. I'm overwhelmed, but you know my path. That's all you need to know. Number three, third fear. In the wilderness, we have both real and imaginary fears. In the wilderness, we have both real and imaginary fears. His power takes care of all my fears. Go to Psalm 34, if you would. David is in a tough jam in Psalm 34, it's crazy what's going on in his life. I don't have time to go into it, but he is in a jam. He's on the run from Saul. He's gone over to the king of the Philistines, and they hated, they hated the Jews, and they didn't trust him, and he had favor with this guy, and they were going to try and kill him, and David acts like a crazy man, so they'll let him. Anyway, it's just nuts. It's insane. Uh, David says this, and he had all kinds of fears. Psalm 34, 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and watch this, and delivered me from all my fears. Real fears. There's real fear. You got, you got, there's real stuff. There's also imaginary stuff. But see, he states a fact. The Lord delivered me from all my fears. So what are you fearing right now? And look at verse 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. That's a fact. It happened. How could that be? Ah, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. That strengthens me. That comforts me. And yesterday I was on the phone with a guy for a while who's in a real jam. And we um, wound up talking. Mary had run into his wife recently, and she described what was going on. I hadn't talked with him in probably four or five months. And uh, Mary said, you might, you might give him a buzz. I did. Talk with him yesterday. And he's in a, he's, he, he's, he's in a wilderness. He's in a big-time wilderness. And this guy has really made some changes in his life to follow the Lord and be serious about God. I've watched him for the last decade. He's made some tough choices. He's in a jam, and he's, he's got a deadline coming. He's got about six weeks. He's got about six weeks of severance left because unexpectedly a really nice position came to an end. And a number of months ago, 
that was a good cushion. He's got about six weeks left, and they're trying to sell a house, and, and he's telling me all this. He was discouraged. The day before, I had been cleaning out my files. I do it every 20 years. <laughs> Honestly. I took 60 pounds of stuff to the UPS store to be shredded. But while I was cleaning, you find stuff when you do that. I found the mortgage papers from when we sold the house in 1990 and moved to Dallas. And I started looking through them, and I just started shaking my head and remembering that wilderness and how hard it was and how difficult it was. And I just sat down, and I just went over it. And I'm talking to this guy the next day. And I said, can I share a story with you? He said, yeah. He said, I don't have anything else to do because he doesn't. I said, this won't take long. We were coming out of, uh, I had been in a wilderness in my early 30s that I really needed, and God was gracious. We made a major move after praying about it for a year, and it really looked good. And it was for about six months. And then for two and a half years, it was really, really tough. Completely different, a different kind of wilderness. I'll leave it at that, except to say, it was time to leave. And we decided we were going to move to Dallas because I was going to try to start a ministry. I had a book that was going to come out for men. We didn't know what we were doing. But if I was going to travel and do conferences, let's be in Dallas. And my brother had lived in Coppell, and we knew some people, and we knew the schools, and we're praying we can get down there by the time school starts. The problem is the average time for a house on the market to sell in that community was 18 to 24 months because they were in bad shape economically. We needed, this was February, we needed to be there in August so the kids could start school. And we put it on the market and, and I, I think it was on the market for three months and we had one person walk through. And we're praying and talking, Lord, and I heard a couple of guys at the Black Eyed Pea talking in the booth next to me, and the guy was saying, there are no four-bedroom houses for rent anywhere. I left. I called a guy that I know who was a broker, and I said, I heard this. He goes, that's true. We had a four-bedroom house. And I said to Mary, hey, if we can't sell it, what if we do a lease with option to buy, at least we can get out of here? So we prayed about it, and, you know, Let's try it. I put a little ad in the paper, Sunday, 12 to 5, open house. It was the Sunday that Greg Norman blew the master's lead. Mary takes the kids down to the neighborhood pool about 1130. I'm there hoping somebody's going to call. 
I'm telling this to the guy on the phone who's in trouble, who's really in a tight spot. I get a call about 12.15. Hey, can we come and see? We saw your ad. Come on over. I had a guy come the night before who got an early edition of the paper. He came over, looked at it with his wife. They said, we'll take it. We'll lease it. Wow. Okay. He said, yeah, I'd be set in a year to get it. Man, we're high-fiving. We're praise God from whom all blessings flow. I get a call an hour later from his son-in-law. Yeah, he's not going to take it. I had trouble all night sleeping because we were on such a tight, so much was riding on this. Well, the next day, then this guy calls at 1215. Can we come over and look? And I, and I think, I, I hope he shows up. 20 minutes later, there's a knock at the door. There they are. Dad, mom, poor little kids. Come on in. Here's you know, a little info sheet. They're walking around. I'm watching Norman blow a putt. And guy comes downstairs and he says, hey, um, are you a Christian? And I said, yeah. He said, I, I saw your books and Bible upstairs. And I said, yeah. He said, well, we are too. And we, you know, we start talking. And he said, my wife loves this house. I said, really? He said, she loves it. And, but I don't have the money right now. Uh, I'm joining a medical practice and I think he's a doctor. This is good. <laughs> he didn't have the money now, but he's going to have it in a year. And he said, I don't have the money now, I'll have it in a year. He said, uh, she loves this house. I said, great. He said, how do you do a lease with option to buy? I said, I have no clue. And I didn't. But I said, my dad's a broker and so is my mom. And we'll figure it out. It happens all the time. He said, let's do it. And his wife came down. She was thrilled. We talked some more. We stand around. We pray, you know. Okay, we'll see you tomorrow. We'll talk tomorrow. Great, you know. Oh, maybe 45 minutes later, an hour later, I get a call. It's him. And I'm afraid, he, I think, he's, he's, he's pulling out like the guy last night. And he said, Steve, I'm really sorry to bother you, but uh, my wife's best friend is uh, our pastor's wife, and she just came by. Could we come back over and show her the house? I said, yeah, come on over. So they come over, they're walking around. I'm watching Norman screw up. And they come back. And then, you know, they're there for a while. And then we hold hands and we pray. And then, okay, we'll see you tomorrow. About an hour later, phone rings. It's him. He's going to pull out on me. Steve, I'm so embarrassed to even ask you this. The pastor wants to know if he can come over. I said, come on over. To the pastor and his wife and their kids, and then this guy's kids, and, and then we're looking, and then we're praying in the hallway. And uh, I said, Hey, you have a Sunday night service? Why don't you call them? Just have them come on over. <laughs> See you tomorrow. They leave. Ten minutes later, Mary pulls in with the kids from the pool. She said, Well, how'd it go? I said, Well, revival broke out. <laughs> and I told her, She said, This is unreal. The next day, we're going to Chili's to just kind of celebrate because now we can leave and we can make some plans and we got to make some plans. And this guy's legit. He's going to lease it and then buy it. So as I'm walking in the Chili's with Mary, the, the gal's taking us to our table and I'm walking, following the gal, and there's a guy sitting at a table right here with his wife. I don't know his name. I know who he is. I've met him. I know what church he goes to. That's it. I don't know what he does. We're walking by, and he goes, hey, Steve. And I said, hey, how you doing? Nice to see you. 
And he said, hey, I hear you're moving to Dallas, starting a ministry. I said, yeah. And he said, that's great. Man, I hope that goes well. I said, well, thanks. Yeah, we're excited. And he goes, have you sold your house yet? It's kind of strange. And I said, no, actually, no, but I just leased it to a doctor who's coming into town to join a practice. And he looked at me and he said, could I ask his name? And I said, yeah, it's Scott such and such. He said, he's joining my practice. I just hit him on the shoulder and I said, give him a raise so he can buy my house. <laughs> ha, 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 ha. See you later. That night he had a call. It's Scott. I'm afraid he's going to pull out on me. Like the other guy. He says, hey, Steve, I got the money to buy your house. I said, what? He said, I got it. We don't have to do the lease. I said, how'd that happen? He said, didn't you talk to Mike at Chili's? <laughs> I said, yeah, but I was just screwing around. He said, well, he came over, he called us, and he said, do you really love that house and all that? And he says, well, why don't I just advance you the down, and then Steve and Mary can get going. You guys can have the house, and it's a done deal. So I told that to the guy yesterday. Because where he was, he wasn't seeing any possible way out. I said, I'm not sure I would have remembered that if I hadn't cleaned out those files yesterday. It strengthened me, and then it strengthened him. Our God is the living God. Yeah, we'll be in the wilderness, but it's for a reason, and it's for a purpose. I said, here's what I want you to do. He's got, he's got a six weeks. He is squeezed. I said, I want you to promise me that you'll call me when God makes a way. And would you tell me about it? He said, I will. I said, you know, my kids know that story. And my grandkids are five and under. But before long, they're going to know that story. Because in about 30 or 40 years, if Jesus doesn't come back, one of my grandkids is going to be in a spot. And they're going to see any way out. And I want them to know that Jesus is the living God. He makes a way. He brings good out of the wilderness. So we praise you, Father, for the truth of your word. There are guys here in tight spots. Deliver them from all their fears in your way, in your time. And they'll give glory to you. They'll tell their kids and their grandkids the works of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.